the story or fill out the story is that women's Bible study at Blackmill started maybe around the time I was born uh, with a group of women wanting to gather and read scripture together. Uh, And it's been going continuously for the last more than three decades. And it's taken different forms at different times. And I'm particularly excited about this year and curious about what the Lord will do. Last year, over 90 women signed up during COVID to hear each other share the word. But there was no gathering And in every area of our lives, we know we're coming out of COVID differently. The world has changed. The Lord hasn't changed. Our commitment to reading scripture together as women hasn't changed. But how and when do we gather and how do we do that? Well, we're sort of in this crucible together this year. And you guys are on the front lines of figuring that out. So... I'm excited that you're here and know that you represent many more women at Blacknell who are sort of listening along and trying to figure out what what does it look like for women's Bible study to go strong for the next 30 years? How do we need to shift and change and adapt? But what we know we can't give up doing is gathering to study the word. So let's get to it. We're going to actually begin with the end of Romans. So I'm going to read a few verses to you from chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kincray. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me, Paul says. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Jesus Christ. They risked their lives they risked their lives for me. It's hard to say. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Imagine it is Sunday morning in first century Rome. While your neighbors head off to work as usual and the streets are bustling with activity, you slip out for a different kind of gathering, church. You end up in the nearby home of Priscilla and Aquila with about maybe 30 others, not too many more than are in this room now, was the entire church that you would have known. And it probably then, as perhaps now, would have been dominated by women. During the course of worship, Priscilla introduces Phoebe, who's come from afar from Kincray with a letter from the Apostle Paul. You've never met this Paul, but you've, maybe you've heard of Paul. Perhaps Priscilla and Aquila told you about this dynamic Christian pastor and shared his testimony. Maybe you've even heard one of his letters, like the letter to the Corinthians, read out loud during the church service. But this time, the letter from Paul is to you, the church in Rome. Phoebe stands up in front of the congregation and reads, beginning with verse 1, chapter 1, and continues all the way through chapter 16. 
Occasionally, she stops to interpret what Paul meant. Christians in Rome first heard Paul's words in the book of Romans in the voice of a woman, Phoebe. So there's something kind of fitting and fun, I think, about us hearing Paul's words in Romans again through the women of Blacknall. Scholars generally agree about some basics about the background of the book of Romans. First, Romans is one of Paul's later letters. It's probably written around the mid to late 50s of the first century AD. I was thinking about that this morning, thinking, so this is, let's say, two decades after Jesus died. It's almost like books that are written now about September 11th, 2001, so it's just about two decades later, this intense sort of life world-changing event that there's been great reflection on, but it really hasn't been that long. So Paul's writing sometime around the mid-50s about this world-changing event about which there's been a ton of reflection, but actually not that much time has passed. As a result of both its date of composition and its occasion, Romans reflects a more mature and polished expression of Paul's theology and pastoral wisdom. I think you heard me say this on Sunday. So whereas he writes to the Corinthians in response to their questions, the Galatians, the church in Galatia, out of anger and concern, the book of Romans is written to to win their favor. And it's a sort of a more polished thorough expression of his theology. People in particular will look at the book of Galatians and Romans side by side to see a lot of the themes that we see in Galatians are picked up and expanded on in the book of Romans. Romans was circulated among house churches in Rome, probably churches of 30 to 40 people max, no church buildings yet at that time, not until the emperor Constantine becomes a Christian later, And then the church has property, so the church is meeting in people's homes, which the largest home couldn't have accommodated more than 30 or 40 people. And so within that relatively small group, you had both Jews and Gentiles. And I think there were several house churches scattered through the city of Rome. And that Romans is addressed to a church that Paul has never visited, but whose favor he's eager to win. So he says in the end of his letter, I really hope you can support me in my mission to Spain. I've really wanted to come visit you before, but I haven't yet. So those are the sort of basics that nobody disagrees on. Now, around the time that Paul wrote, all the Jews, including Jewish Christians, were expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius. Several years later, these Jewish Christians were allowed to return. The Bible Project is an online video series that has great introductions to every, every book of the Bible, and they sort of go in depth imagining how, we, how this might have affected the book of Romans. It's hard to tell the dating of that event, the official dating of the book of Romans, but regardless of whether Romans was written before, during, or after the expulsion of the Jews, That event reminds us of two things about the church in Rome. First, this is a fledgling new movement that's incredibly vulnerable. And second, 
this Jew-Gentile difference was a big deal. Being a Jewish Christian meant you could be forced to leave the city to give up your home and livelihood, whereas being a Gentile Christian, you didn't have that target on your back, so to speak. Imagine if everyone at Blacknell who had a Catholic background or who was from north of the Mason-Dixon line suddenly had to leave North Carolina. And then four years later, they came back. That would feel like a major divide. I wish we had time to go around and share what's been your experience with the book of Romans. How familiar are you with this book? I know some of you studied it with women's Bible study a few years ago. Others of you perhaps have snippets in your memory, like I do, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, maybe others of you will say, I've never really sat down and read Romans, a little daunting. Or perhaps as someone said to me recently, who's the Apostle Paul? In some ways, you are spending most of the semester savoring the most delightful and accessible part of the book of Romans, chapter 8. I don't know if you're a cake or an icing person. I'm an icing person. If you're a center brownie person or a corner brownie person, but you're spending most of the semester enjoying the perfect bite. But we want to spend a few weeks putting that bite in its also delicious context. So today I'm trying to give you a brief outline of Romans, and then it will go in depth the next two weeks. I'll be interviewing Blacknell friends who also happen to be female biblical scholars. And so I'll be posing questions to them. Next week it'll be Amy Wisenand about Romans 1 through 4. The following week it'll be Kat Burgett about Romans 5 through 7. So if you have questions already, get them to me and I'll ask them. We're going to record a video uh, to show to you. And as a congregation, we're spending time in Romans chapter 12, which gives you a pretty good flavor of what the rest of the Romans is about, practical application. But here's your big picture flyover overview, okay? You ready? So in Romans, Paul's telling a big story, and the outline is something like this. Introduction, God's wrath, God's righteousness, God's grace and the new humanity, God's faithfulness, our obedience in faith, and conclusion. Introduction, God's wrath, God's righteousness, God's grace and the new humanity, God's faithfulness to Israel, our obedience in faith, and conclusion. So let me fill that out just a little bit. Paul begins with an introduction of himself and this thing he calls the gospel. That's the first half of chapter 1. And our famous quote there is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Then for the rest of chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 3, Paul talks about God's wrath revealed. It's the problem of sin. And Paul makes a case that since the creation of the world... God's qualities have been made known, and people are without excuse. It sounds to the Jewish reader like it's a story aimed at the Gentiles. Yeah, they really don't have any excuse. 
But then in chapter 2, Paul turns the tables towards the Jews and said, oh yeah, you thought I was talking about them? I'm talking about you too. Imagine what that would have been like if you're sitting in the congregation. There's 30 of you. 10 of you are Jews. 20 of you are Gentiles. You're feeling a little smug at first if you're Jewish. Like, yeah, you should have known all along, but you're lucky you figured it out as Johnny come lately. And then the letter turns towards you. But you've had the law, but you didn't follow it. And And the point is that all, Gentiles and Jews, whoever you are, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we'll talk more about what that means next week. Next is the section on God's righteousness, or the solution to the human sin problem. And that's the rest of chapter 3 through chapter 4. Two big ideas here are justification by faith and Abraham and the promise of faith. This word justification is a legal term. You might think about justifying yourself. You know, you're giving reasons why you're right. Justification is a term meaning you have a new status. And so you're justified or given a new status before God based on faith in Christ. Not good works, not ethnicity. Paul wants to make sure we know it's neither of those things. And so he he retells the story of Abraham to make two points. First, that Abraham received the promise of God. So there's the story of Abraham where the Lord comes to him and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he says, like, do you know how old I am? I haven't had any children. I mean, some of us in this room are pregnant and some of us are beyond childbearing age. Can you imagine if the Lord came to you and said, Becky, you're going to have a son. That would be a shocker, wouldn't it? No offense, making assumptions about your age. And but Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him, credited to him as righteousness before he has the law. And so Paul is retelling the story to make two points. One point is that Abraham isn't given this promise by God to become the father of all nations because he's perfectly fulfilled the law and he can show God his checklist. Look, gold star for all the Ten Commandments because he doesn't even have them yet. But there's another point too, that because Abraham gets his righteousness by faith, that he's the father of this multi-ethnic family, not just Israelite family, but a family where anyone can be included by faith in Christ. So Paul, when we think about Romans, we really think about faith and works. And that's right for us to do so. But as scholars have sort of read and studied Romans more recently, they've become attuned to the sort of ethnic tensions that are going on. That maybe the big problem with Jewish Christians wasn't that they thought they could win God's favor by works, but that they also just thought they had God's favor because they had the right background. Does that make sense? So both are issues, and we want to keep both in our minds. So that makes Romans both this amazing book about God's grace, where we can't complete our good works, and also a sort of boundary-breaking gospel of reconciliation, where people that shouldn't be together are brought in the same family. So we'll talk more about that.
So the famous quote in this section, God's righteousness and the solution to the human sin problem, is that uh, now to the one who works, wages are credits, not credits, but it, now to the one who works, wages are not given as a gift, are credits not as a gift, but an obligation. I must have written this wrong. But to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That's our famous quote and this section on God's righteousness. The next section is God's grace and human's free, human freedom, chapters 5 through 8. In this section, Paul introduces Christ, this is important, not as the next Abraham, like the father of a Jewish nation, not as the next Israel, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but as the second Adam. So he's retelling the story of all of creation. Uh, And he's creating a new humanity in Christ. And that this new humanity deals with the ongoing temptation to sin. And he talks about the role of the law in the life of believers. So this is chapters 5 through really 8. And so the famous quote here is, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The next, so... Really, 1 through 8, Paul's laying out this big gospel of grace, of God's righteousness, uh, of salvation through Christ. And then he, we talk about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, which we'll get a lot of this semester. And then in chapters 9 through 11, it's almost like an excursus. Uh, Paul's saying, but what about Israel? But how have my people not responded to this message? So he's dealing with the fact that his mission has been more successful among the Gentiles. And how is he to understand this? Uh, Think about some of the confusion and grief that so many of us bear with. How does this child of mine not respond? How does this family member of mine, we grew up together in the same family and heard the same good news. How do they not respond the way that that haunts you and confuses you and upends you at any moment. We're seeing this in the Apostle Paul himself in chapters 9 through 11. He's thinking about all of Israel. And his conclusion is ultimately that God is faithful to his promises, but we don't really know how. And the famous quote here is this image of an olive tree where the Gentiles are these sort of wild shoots that are grafted onto the tree. We act, my husband actually does some grafting. So you take a branch from one tree, you paint some root spreader stuff on. I bet somebody here knows this better than I do. Put it on there, wrap the tape around, and hope that it grows as a part of the tree, and it takes. So the Gentiles are those wild shoots that you sort of added to the tree and hope it takes. And the Jews are the tree themselves, but some of them have been cut off. So this is the image, the famous image in 9 through 11. And our quote is Paul saying, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his people. So you can feel his anguish over those he loves, having not responded to this gospel. And finally, chapters 12 through 16 is this section on the obedience of faith. So Paul turns from indicatives. You know what an indicative statement is? Uh, An indicative statement is, Sarah's wearing her mask. 
an imperative statement is, Sarah, wear your mask. <laughs> and on and on. So Paul turns from indicatives, this, what is, this is what God has done, to imperatives. This is what you are to do as God's people. He instructs the church on how what God has done will play out in its life together as the people of God. We're taking a close look at chapter 12 in worship. Following chapter 12, you have chapter 13, which addresses the church's relationship with the government. Um, And then in 14 and 15, you have an extended and really important discussion of the strong and the weak. And we're picking up on some of the ethnic conflicts there between Jews and Gentiles, between people who are accustomed to worshiping and honoring God in one way, and people who are sort of Johnny-come-latelys to the faith who feel a lot of freedom in Christ. And how do they coexist in this 30-person house church? And the famous quote here we heard in worship a few weeks ago, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then the conclusion in Romans is a whole chapter or more. It's really a chapter and a half. Paul gives blessing and benediction and benediction in chapter 15, and then he has a whole list. Greet this person, greet that person, greet this person, greet that person. It's not just something to sort of gloss over, but think about what does this show about the strength of relationships in the early church? What can we learn about who was there from these kind of closing greetings? Now, I don't expect that you'll be able to recall the outline of the book of Romans. (laughs) And my goal is not necessarily to download something into your memory that you will readily be able to access at any moment. Oh, I should look back on the section about God's righteousness. But I do want you to remember that chapter 8 is the cream-filled center of a supersized story. And here are three things to remember about the supersized story, sort of correctives. I think our temptation would be to sort of read Romans only as a letter written about me and my personal relationship with God. And the emphasis, the only goal, is for me to respond to God. That is 100% absolutely one of the goals. But we don't want to miss that this is a supersized story. So three things to keep in mind. Romans is a story that's cosmic. So it begins with creation, right? Since the beginning of creation, God's qualities have been made known. And you'll see in Romans 8 that Paul is looking forward to the future glory. This is a story that includes every human and non-human aspect of creation. All of creation groans in eager expectation for the revelations of the sons of God. Paul's picking up on the Old Testament and these images of trees clapping hands when the Lord comes. So this is cosmic. It's not just about humans. It's about all of what God has created. It's not just a story about individual responses to God, though it certainly is. It's a salvation history of the whole earth. So we want to remember that Romans is a cosmic story. We also want to remember that Romans is a story that's communal. So this might sound a little contradictory, but... Romans is a cosmic story, but it's not like a fantasy novel. Do you know what I mean? Paul isn't creating this alternate world that has no basis in reality, like, 
oh, this is Paul's Harry Potter, or this is Paul's, you know, dystopian fiction. No, this is a cosmic story that actually has a basis in reality. It has a history with particular people with a particular body. So though it's a cosmic story, it's also a historical story. It's an embodied tale. So people are living this in these bo- their bodies, their circumcised or uncircumcised bodies, Jews or Gentiles. And finally, Romans is a story that's practical. <laughs> you might not think that when it's 11 chapters of theology, but Paul writes this with the expectation that it will change us, that it has a real that what he says in 1 through 11 has real life day-to-day implications spelled out in chapters 12 through 15. It's not just Romans is not just a spiritual story. It's not just a fantasy story, and it's not just an individual story. It's a supersized, cosmic, historical, practical tale. And it's a story of God's salvation. I'm excited that y'all have chosen the study, and I know that folks approach the scriptures in different ways. And even in the beginning of the study guide, she talks about Trillia Newbell talks about different ways that people approach the scriptures, that some people really want to dig in, you want to get your study guides out, you want to read part verses in chapter 8 and see how they connect, connect to chapters 1 through 4 or 5 through 7, and we want to give you the tools to do that. Um, and some of us are more contemplative. There's a long history of people approaching the book of Romans in both ways. Think about those people who heard the whole book read aloud in one sitting without any paper copy. That was a sort of, I'm going to be a wash in Paul's words. I'm grabbing on to what I can. Holy Spirit, speak to me, encounter with Romans. Then you have Martin Luther, who's you know a cloistered monk who's writing a commentary on Romans and has a conversion experience and then continues to write and write and write on Romans. That's quite a different experience of the book of Romans. But I think however we are approaching it, we need to hear the voice of the Lord. This wasn't a Romans road written for non-Christians who had never heard. It's actually a letter written to church people like us who need to be reminded again of God's cosmic good news and needed to be reminded to have mercy on one another too. I think that's good news we need to hear together, friends. Can I pray for us? Lord, we praise you for the women who have responded to your gospel. For Mary, who responded to the angel Gabriel's invitation. To the women who came to the empty tomb and overcame their fears to share the good news. For Phoebe and Junia and so many others, Lord, whose names we don't know. Thanks for the women of this church. For Josie Blacknell. Lord, thanks for these women. God, we trust you to speak. Speak through this study. Speak through your word. 
speak through one another. We don't ask you because we've got a long list of accomplishments we think will impress you or a pedigree that we think gives us the right. We ask you because we know you to be a merciful God who unbelievably wants to know us today. So we pray together in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks, friends.